Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusuf and I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias and I'm back again with Yusuf Oine. What's up? Hey, Tobias. For me, top of mind has been going to the gym lately. So I, I think I've mentioned this perhaps once or twice that I, I try to go to the gym three times a week and every eight or 12 weeks, we sort of stop with whatever program we have going on with my trainer and we try to hit new personal records on, on a few select movements like bench pressing and deadlifts. And this week is one of those weeks. It's interesting, you know, that it's just for your own pleasure to test out if you're any stronger than you were two months ago. And even if you fail, you don't reach any new heights. It's still fine. Nobody's expecting you to do better, but you just set this bar mentally for yourself. So this week I'm anxious to try out how I've been perhaps advancing. But at the same time, I'm trying to be conscious of sleeping enough, eating well, getting active recovery and rest. But it seems that's mostly consuming my thoughts lately. How about for you? <laughs> so speaking of that, when I do my workouts, I usually go on the bike these days and I keep track of everything in digital apps so I can see how far did I go, and what cadence, what pace heart rates, so I can kind of measure everything. Do you do the same when you go to the gym? Because the last time I went to the gym, that's probably 10 or 15 years ago, I used a pen and a paper and you got this kind of grid notebook and you put down 10 kilos of this check, 45 iterations of this check. But I guess today you use some kind of modern tracking so you can compete with yourself or how do you keep track if you're actually making progress? It's, it's exactly the same as when you went last gym. We have a piece of paper with the program. So it's three pieces of paper, one program each. And, and when I began going to the gym a couple of years ago, I carefully recorded every single plate that I would use. Okay, plus 10 kilo here, plus 2.5 there. Now I, I just put the maximums in there. So if I do bench press, I just put 100 and something done. And then I can revisit six months ago to see what was my max then. And I've been contemplating on building a Power BI report out of those. But I've, I've got about 40 past programs. So 40 times three, 120 pieces of paper with my, with my scribblings. So I need to set aside a full weekend to, to capture all of that in a digital app. But for now, it's, it's fully analog. All right. Yeah, that sounds pretty good, actually. Um... You don't have to bring digital life with you everywhere. So on my side, I am starting my next iteration of home renovations. And I recently installed ventilations myself in my home office, which I'm in right now. So you cannot see the ventilation on the video uh, or in the recording if you're tuning in, but it's pretty fun to do these things. So um, I learned quite a few things about renovating buildings and making sure the air flows come into one room and goes out the other room. and mechanical uh, air vents versus in Sweden you call this quelldrog, which means the air goes in and out by itself, stuff like this. So that kind of got me very curious about what can I actually do myself around the house? So now we're gonna renovate the living room. Uh, and again, there we will also 
kind of upgrade the ventilation to get fresh air in because uh, it's a 50-year-old house. But I guess the biggest uh, concern here or the biggest contemplation I have is whether to put spotlights or not, which is, I, I guess, whenever I have renovated something, I put spotlights in, which I also have in my home office now. It's kind of nice, but it's not very cozy. It's very good type of uh, lighting that will light your entire room and you can fade it down, but you don't really get this cozy feel that you get with a, uh, a directional light or like a, a light coming down from the ceiling. So still contemplating what to do. And I guess I need to make that decision before I start because I cannot put the spotlights in afterwards because the cables has to go you know, in between the ceiling and the roof. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. I'm contemplating and planning home renovations. And it's also pretty fun because I'm doing everything on paper just to get a break from digital life. So, so that's pretty cool. I'm a, I'm a huge fan myself of indirect light, especially in the ceiling, but that's often the most expensive one to build because you have to have this fake ceiling in, in between. So the, the LED light or LED lights or spotlights are, are really nice. But as you said, if you want a bit more warmth into it, then you, then you possibly need to design for something else. So. Today, this is episode 106, reflecting on Microsoft Ignite Fall 2021 announcements and news. So as we are recording this, Ignite is, is running at the same time. So, so thoughts on Ignite. How are you receiving all the news and, and the whole event this time around? Yeah, good question and an interesting topic. So I spent some time watching a few of the Ignite announcements and the majority of the time that I spent was actually reading the announcement blog posts or the Azure updates as they became available. I did watch or streamed some of the videos. It's just not my cup of tea. Video learning is great for a lot of people. I don't think that's for me. I really like reading stuff because I usually read faster than the video plays. And of course you can speed up a video, but when it's running as the keynote, it's starting at this time and it's going to run at normal pace, then I'd rather just go to the blog post and consume the content that I'm interested in. Uh, so that's what I did. And then when I found something interesting, I went back to the recorded sessions and the sessions on demand to take a look uh, more in depth if they said something in those presentations that was of interest. So for me, I mean, coming back to, I think we talked about this in the previous Ignite podcast episode we had, because this is the second Ignite of 2021, because we had one in March, April timeframe, something. And now this is the fall edition. And I think we talked about it back then as well, that, you know, we miss people. So usually I went to a conference, not because of the content or the keynotes, but I went there because I met with people. It's networking. You meet up with old friends, you make new acquaintances, uh, you learn things from people that you actually talk to. Whereas now you watch a video. And that video talks to you, but you cannot speak back and you cannot really talk to the other people around either. You have a chat window, but when there's 10,000 chat messages from random strangers that you don't really get a face on, you don't use it. I don't use it anyway. So I really miss that part. So for me, digesting most of the content is reading the announcement blog posts and the Azure updates uh, RSS feed pretty much. What about you? I, I have a friend who never watches Ignite during the week that it's happening, but takes a week to sort of digest the news later on, and then comes back three weeks from now to say, okay, I've made up my mind about these new announcements. So he really wants to, wants to spend time just thinking about them without reacting to anything. 
So for me, I did watch all of the keynotes. They were they were yesterday evening, and I arranged with the family that I won't be joining for dinner as as we normally do dinner together at 5 p.m. as as is typical in Finland. Uh, I will be in my home office, but then the soon-to-be four-year-old did wander into my home office a couple of times, which is not a problem because I didn't have the camera on. And 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 he sat on my lap and said, Daddy, I do need you to print me two pictures of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with the, with the one of them that has the blue blue uh, eye mask. And I'm like, okay, I think I can do it. So I was typing sort of on the left hand my notes on the keynotes. And on the right hand, I was navigating to an image search to pick up the pictures to to print it out. And then then it hits me that if I'm away from home, if I'm traveling to the US for Ignite, then obviously I'm I'm fully immersed in everything that that's there. But when you're sitting at home following the news, following the keynotes, following the sessions, you are still part of the home life that happens at the same time. It doesn't pause even if if you would sort of hope it would pause because you, you are busy doing something else. So around Ignite for me, I, I know we talked about the cloud skills challenge. And if I recall correctly, it, it began perhaps when Ignite began. And you need to watch a set of journeys on Microsoft Learn. And if you pass those successfully, then there's the possibility of getting a free certification exam voucher. And I'm openly admitting I've done none of this because <laughs> I've been busy watching the keynotes. But did, did you have a chance to look at this yet? I started taking a look at them and I really like the setup here because um, it's like the stick in the carrot, right? You have to do something, but if you do that, you will get the reward. And in this case, you get a free exam voucher. And it's not really if you pass, because if, if you do these challenges or these training on Microsoft Learn, when you come to the end of a module, it's going to say, hey, here's a knowledge check. And then you get two or three questions. If you answer wrong, it's going to tell you, no, you picked the wrong answer. Change your answer. Then you can pick the next one and it's going to say, oh, that was also the wrong one. You can choose again. <laughs> then you pick the next one. Okay, that was successful. Uh, congratulations, you passed the module. So it's that's not an exam, right? It's not there to hinder or block you from moving on. It's only there to say, hey, this is a knowledge check and for your own info. If you want to see if you actually understood what we just presented in that module. Uh, but if, if you fail to answer one of those questions, it doesn't matter because you don't get a score at the end, really. It's more, did you complete all the modules? Then you get 100%. And if you didn't complete all the modules, you don't get 100%. But there is no 700 out of 1,000 score because it's not an actual exam. So I would actually invite anyone to try it out. It's free. The content on Microsoft Learn is pretty good. And I like this way of doing things interactively in, in the sense that you click start. Then you get a one pager saying, hey, we're going to talk about. So for the, I know, for example, the one I did last time was for Azure developers, um, the AZ 104 or 204 or whatever the numbers okay. are now. Yeah. Then it's going to perhaps ask you about Cosmos DB, you know, and, and page one. Now we're going to talk about consistency models and consistency levels. And what are they? Strong consistency versus uh, eventual consistency and everything in between, like session and, and whatever. And it's it's just a one page, super simple. Okay, I understand what it is. Next. Okay, here's how you make the decision on these things. Okay, great. Next. So it's it's super easy to consume this stuff. And then at the end, it's going to say, okay, now you need to make a decision for a consistency model based on this scenario. What would you choose? 
And then you can just go back to and think about what did I just read about? Well, it was one page about this, not even a long page. It's like the information is really easy to digest. And yeah, I, I like this experience because it's not like going to the docs.microsoft.com, go to a service and then read all about it, where there's literally two, 300 pages per service that you need to kind of brush up on. Here's one, two pages. That's it. It's very focused. So definitely a great experience doing that. I did it just now. Uh, I didn't finalize the challenge I'm doing yet because there's quite some modules, so it's going to take me some time. Uh, but every now and then when I have a break, uh, I'm able to go there, read a couple of pages of one of the topics I need to brush up on or something I have no idea about. And I, because obviously taking the developer one again wouldn't make sense because I have the certification for that. So now I do something else. Um, and I noticed, I think it's the SC400 is available, uh, the Secured Operation Analysts or whatever the, the full title is. Um, and that's pretty good because you get the same setup. Here's one pager. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what you're going to learn. At the end, you get a knowledge check. Okay, next module. So there's always something to learn. And I, I know it's limited to what challenges you can do. You cannot just select any type of exam that exists with Microsoft, but you, there's a select list. So if you go to the to the link, we'll put that in the show notes. If you go to the link, you will see that uh, there's a list of valid challenges that will give you a free voucher. And I think at least here in Sweden, the value of that voucher is 165 US dollars. That's what the cost is to take an exam. So you're pretty much getting that for free. So 165 bucks in your pocket that you can use to take or try to take whatever exam you want. So I don't see there's a reason why not to do it because it's low-hanging fruit. You will get this voucher. You can spend it on any real exam that you want to take. So pretty good. I think it's a good deal. Uh, I need to set some time aside and enroll or register for that before there's possibly an opportunity window that closes. And, and then I really need to dive deep into a few things that I'm hoping to do in the exam in the future. So the other thing, perhaps before we dive into the more technical bits, is that part of the keynotes, I, I think it, it was part of two or three keynotes because they were fairly short keynotes, only 30 minutes each, was the, the Microsoft's vision of the metaverse. <laughs> and, and obviously Facebook has been all about meta and metaverse for, for the past few months. And I think my Microsoft has mentioned Metaverse a couple of times uh, before this week as well. And I sort of think I understand what it entails, but but we are roughly the same age, so we are we are not teenagers anymore. So so uh, how how do you approach this? Do do you feel that you're good to go to Metaverse, or will we end up being the grumpy old? IT men who simply refuse to embrace anything new and will stick to text and, and, and SMS messages. Plug me into the matrix, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I think uh, the metaverse, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you also have a lot of things and, and opinions about what this is, but my relationship to something called metaverse is perhaps far outside of the realm of what Microsoft is thinking about right now. Uh, I'm thinking about digital assets, bringing the physical world online into the digital plane, events, concerts, and, you know, a lot of things are digitalized. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how my, Microsoft's taken this go. And I think, uh, like on the old Wikipedia, which is now quite old, 
for a metaverse, I think it says something like a, a future iteration of the internet, you know, made up of persistent shared 3D virtual spaces, and they're linked like in a perceived virtual universe. So I, I think that's here to stay because the younger generations today, they do that already. So um, there are these uh, these games. I don't know the name of these games because I don't play any games. Not Call of Duty, but the other one, uh, Fallout. No, something else. Fortnite. Fortnite. That's the yeah. one. You know, that's in a sense a metaverse because you have these 3D worlds. You run around. You have your character. You can interact. There are artists and hip hop artists that I know that had concerts inside of this game. So people pay money to get a license for the game, and then they go into this, let's call it a metaverse, uh, which is just a virtual 3D world, and they have their virtual friends or real friends, but virtually represented, uh, a virtual concert, their virtual assets, virtual goods. So, I mean, I, I think this is here to stay, but again, that's my take on the metaverse being quite different, I think, from Microsoft's metaverse solution, because I, I think with Microsoft, they mention uh, applications, which is Microsoft Teams, Dynamics 365, Microsoft HoloLens, Microsoft Mesh, Logic with the Power Platform, Intelligence with AI, Autonomous Systems, Data, Synapse, and Location with Azure Maps, and Modeling with Azure Digital Twins, and Connectivity with IoT. So, I mean, their take is perhaps more how do you build a metaverse or how do you how do you kind of get that into the ecosystem, whereas I think a lot of younger people today, not necessarily in our line of business, but young, younger people in general, also all older people, but I think the majority is the younger audience. They already do this, right? They're already emerged into these virtual worlds, virtual realities, augmented realities. They spend a lot of time in there. So it's nothing new. I don't think this is something that is uh, revolutionary in any way because there is an entire generation doing this. Every single day, they live in the virtual world. They share digital assets. They buy NFTs, like digital artwork, which is you know a, a story in itself that we can probably talk about sometime. Uh, I don't think we have time to talk about cryptos and NFTs now. But the younger generations today see value in things that the older generations do not, like gold or buying a piece of art that you hang on your wall. People don't appreciate that value anymore. And that's not wrong. It's just a new generation with new ideals and you know, a, a new way to see value. And their value is a lot in the digital space, which I believe the metaverse will be a huge part of. So um, a long rant about the word metaverse. It's going to be really interesting to see how Microsoft fits into that picture or if they kind of create their own picture of what the metaverse is. Uh, interesting. I'm I'm looking perhaps at the same picture that that you saw yesterday during such an Adela's keynote. That's titled the Metaverse Solutions. I'll I'll put a link to the picture in the show notes. And when we talk about metaverse, I feel people often focus on the end result that I'm using Hololens or mixed reality glasses or attending a Teams meeting with with some people not having their webcam on but having this emo animated emoji and that's it. But looking at, at the full stack of solutions and products that Microsoft envisions being part of Metaverse, it's, it's what about 12, 15 different services combined together. And the HoloLens is, is just one of those. So for sure, two years from now, perhaps we are recording episode uh, 200 and something at that time, then 
we will be doing this over a different medium than using Teams or Zoom like we normally use. So it will be interesting to see where this leads and if there's going to be a crossroad, will some portion of users be left on the sort of legacy platforms and some portion of users will embrace whatever this new world is going to promise and deliver to us. But today, I, this is really not about metaverse because we know very little about that for now. So perhaps we dive deeper into a couple of select announcements from Ignite. What, what would you pick first, top, top of mind for you? So I, I have two things, really. I mean, there was a lot of things that they announced. A lot of them were enhancements, uh, security enhancements, feature enhancements, service enhancements, compliance enhancements, uh, stuff like this. And a few of them were new features and, and new services. The two things that really stick out to me uh, because number one, I work with these things. And number two, I see many use cases where I can need this or well, where I will use it. So the first thing on my list here out of these two is Microsoft Defender for cloud apps. Now, this is formally known as Microsoft Cloud App Security or MCAS. So if you have used that in the past, Microsoft Defender for cloud apps is Microsoft Cloud App Security with some added features and like a rebrand. So they're getting into the Microsoft Defender uh, brand and, and adding some new features on top of it. And one thing that struck me in particular is uh, that there's a new app governance capability to detect and protect against like risky app behaviors. So you can quickly identify um, an alert and protect from any risky behavior with your data users and the apps. Now, one thing that stood out in that announcement, and I haven't tried this out yet, but I, I'm hoping that I will be able to do that and we'll get to that in a bit. It's designed for OAuth enabled apps and that can access Microsoft 365 data with Microsoft Graph APIs. So one of the things we do is we use Microsoft Graph a lot. We use these APIs and customers come back and say, okay, so what is your app doing? How can we trust the app? You know? And the same thing for us, when we go to a third party and we say, okay, let's consent to this app and it needs access to read my inbox as the current user or whatever it's requesting, then you forget about that half a year later, who knows that you did that? You know, there might be an admin who knows about it. There also might not be, depending on uh, how well-versed your organization is with compliance and security and privacy. So I really like this kind of app governance thing where you get insights and you can view all the third-party and line-of-business apps from the Microsoft 365 platform in your tenant. You can see the app's status and alert activities, and then you can take action. So you can see things like you have in the traditional cloud app security, and uh, you can see permission privilege of, of the apps, number of users, the data access, like the amount of gigabytes it, it's accessing, certification status of the app. So you have self-attested and Microsoft certified, I believe, to see, you know, this app is already flagged as risky, and then it's self-attested, which means the organization themselves said, hey, we're good, this is a good app. Whereas if it's a Microsoft certified app, it means Microsoft made a review of the app and said, hey, this is a good app. And then you can see uh, uh, with the governance aspect, you can create policies, proactive or reactive. So a policy to prevent stuff or a policy to take action when something happened. If you can do this for apps and user patterns and behaviors. So an example, uh, an example here, I guess, is anomalous data access which could be an audit policy. So when data is accessed in a strange way or there's an anomaly happening within the app and uh, something that avoids or deviates from the normal patterns that you see with that app, or a new app that has a high volume of data access might also be a risk. 
It doesn't have to be, but it might be. So you can then take, go take a look. So you have detections, you get alerts and notifications when these anomalies happen in app activities. Uh, and then you can see non-compliant, malicious or risky apps and how they're being used. You can detect behaviors, um, you know, inside of the apps using machine learning models, which is not really, you don't do that because this is done by Microsoft Defender for, for cloud apps for you uh, with this app governance thing. And it's pretty cool. You have things like uh, cloud app risks, um, app access, which is Azure AD, app use, which comes from uh, Defender for cloud apps, which we're talking about now, and then app behavior, which is app governance being a part of that, uh, which is what we're talking about right now as part of Microsoft Defender for cloud apps. So there are surely these three big buckets, um, app access, app use, and app behavior. So I, th I think the majority of the focus that I will take a, you know, some of my time to figure out is app behavior. What can we learn from how the app is used? Not just who's accessing it and you know, where is it being used? Because that's traditionally what you could do with Microsoft Cloud App Security. Now you get the app behavior with the app governance to see not just if and how it's being used, but how it behaves and how, you know, what are the user patterns? What are the patterns within the app and, and stuff like that, uh, all powered by AI and machine learning. So I, I think that's one of my kind of key announcements that they made that there are some, of course, a rebrand of this, which is already confusing because you have Microsoft 365 and Microsoft Defender 365, you have Microsoft Azure Defenders and you have uh, yeah, a, a different kind of uh, plethora of defenders now, and it just needs to sit into the right bucket. And one thing that I was trying to figure out is like, how do I get started with this? Because I went to my cloud app security, and I thought if this now is the new cloud app security, I'll get a link to a preview or something. So what you have to do is, if you're not already a Defender for Cloud Apps customer, you can sign up for a free trial, and you do that by navigating to the link we'll put in the show note, and then you complete a step for signing up. So then you sign up for a trial for um, Defender for Cloud Apps, and then you navigate to a sign-up page for the free trial of app governance. So after you have the trial for Defender for Cloud Apps, you sign up for the trial for app governance, uh, and then you can complete the steps uh, to add a free trial of, of app governance to your tenant as well. And you will need one of the licenses, um, which is either Defender for Cloud Apps or any of the Microsoft 365 E5A5, E5A5 compliance, E5A5 information protection and, and governance, E5A5 security, or F5 compliance add-on, or F5 security and compliance add-on. So it's it's pretty high levels of uh, of licensing here, all F5 or E5 um, or A5, but you can also get the Defender for Cloud app specifically. So we'll put the links in the show notes for where to sign up for the trial for Defender for Cloud Apps and where to sign up when you have that, where to sign up for the uh, trial for the app governance within Defender for Cloud Apps. I think that's going to be uh, one of the key things that I will spend some time off um, on in the coming weeks. Set up the trial, really dedicate a couple of times uh, every day to drill down into the data, discover all the apps we have, see what kind of patterns we have in usages and behaviors, and, and really get this data out and, you know, in front in front of us, so we can see how things are being actually utilized in our tenant. I'm pretty sure we're going to find stuff that we didn't know. So we're already users of Microsoft Cloud App Security, so we we can see quite a lot of things already. But with these new capabilities, capabilities, I'm I'm really interesting to see, you know, are there things that we have missed? 
is there you know a, a way to simplify this process because it is a process in a way that you don't just go here to cloud app security and say hey i'm going to figure stuff out because what if you have 10,000 apps or 100 apps but 50 of those apps are flagged as with high privilege and high risk it's not like you can go and disable them because they're used in production workloads by users all across the organization so there's a lot of work when you need to take action. So even if you discover a lot of apps that might be risky, the real work comes in figuring out what do I need to do now? Now I know we have a lot of risky stuff, which we already know from cloud app security, but how do we take the next step from here? How do we figure this out? So I, I think, and I foresee there's a lot of work ahead, but I also think it will be simpler and easier for us to actually digest that with these new features. I think 20 episodes from now, I will still be talking about MCAS and, and not the new name. It always takes about six months to get used to, to a new name. I'm really liking these added features, even though I haven't tried them yet, but I will, I will also spin them up in the trial. Perhaps to note on the licenses, so E5 or equivalent license A5 and, and whatnot is required. And that often seems to be a challenge, especially with, with smaller businesses. You go out and say, yes, we got this amazing security offering, but you're going to need to upgrade from E3 to E5. The added cost for your business will be whatever amount of money per year. And it's often a hard sell in terms of, yes, you need more security, but there's a limited budget in terms of what they can afford or, or are planning to actually get in terms of licensing. So perhaps this is slightly more easier to understand in terms of licensing because MCAS had some, some pitfalls with the licensing on, on certain uh, exotic scenarios, what sort of licensing is required. So on my list, and, and before you, you uh, kick me out of this recording, hear me out. So mine is about power apps. And yes, uh -oh. I do know it's not part of Azure and we are focused on Azure. But what's interesting here is that there's a new licensing model. And the challenge with Power Platform, especially Power Automate and Power Apps, has been with the licensing. Uh, it, it keeps shifting every year or two. And companies are sort of playing catch up on what sort of license do we need if we use these features. So now there's a third licensing model, but this is specifically for Power Apps. And if somebody in the audience doesn't or hasn't had the chance to work with Power Apps, the idea is that you build business apps without coding. And those can be Canvas apps, meaning you have a blank canvas, you just start building your app, or they can be model-driven apps, meaning you bring in the data, and based on the data, you craft the application. And the application can be used on a mobile device or on the desktop or laptop or, or what have you. So now the third model, the new model that was announced yesterday at Ignite is pay as you go. But this is specifically for power apps for now. It's $10 per active user or per active application per month. So this is all good in, in terms of power platform. But what this entails is that the pay-as-you-go obviously means that somebody needs to open their wallet so that when users start building these apps and sharing those internally or externally, somebody somewhere within the organization needs to go, yes, I'm willing to ingest this cost 
to our cost allocation. And this is where Azure comes in. So in order to use pay-as-you-go model for Power Apps, you're actually designating one Azure subscription to be the place that ingests that cost. And the cost of this license will be paid through your regular Azure cost management mechanisms. So some months ago, we had an episode on, on FinOps, finance operations, and this applies to that too. So instead of going to Microsoft 365, acquiring a bunch of licenses, allocating those to your Power Platform tenant or environments that you have in there, what you now do is you say, let's configure pay-as-you-go model. Anybody can use Power Apps just as they like, and we're tracking that cost from Azure, and, and they reflect in the total Azure billing plan you have in Azure Cost Management. And then you can decide how you want to allocate or budget those costs. So it's an interesting bit, and I feel it ties into the bigger picture of our platform uh, inching closer to Azure in terms of the Fusion teams and Fusion development. And there's, there's more announcements around how Power Platform is close to Azure now, but I feel this is perhaps a fairly big step in terms of not being a technical thing, but more about enabling the financial component so that organizations can expand more on Power Apps, but rely on whatever credit card or other payment plan they have in Azure. Okay, that makes sense. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens in this area because I mean, like you just mentioned, Fusion Dev is, uh, I mean, this is growing. And I mean, we, we both come from a line of business where we worked a lot with SharePoint, which is uh, um, something we used for uh, collaborative experiences for customers, intranets, stuff like that, that enabled people to work together. I did a lot of development on that platform, which was, you know, real hardcore development. There was no low code, no code solutions for me when I did that. But organizations, they don't care, right? They say, we need to fulfill this requirement. And whether you do that using C-sharp and some super advanced logic, or if you use a power app, doesn't matter. But now that the power of this and, and the Fusion Dev is you can bring all that experience of a developer and the low code, no code um, approach together, and you can actually build some logic in C-sharp that connects with your power apps. So you can actually build pretty robust uh, solutions used by all the users or many users in your organization. You don't have to spin up an entire new department just for development to do that. So I, I really like that. So, and I like this new pricing model that kind of enables you to swipe the card and make it happen a lot easier. At least that's that's what I hope. So for me, the only other update I had, I know I talked a lot about my first update. So bear with me, I might talk even more about this one because this one rings close to my heart and this is Azure Container Apps. Now we need to do an episode on this, or two, or three, or five. I don't, I don't know where the limit will be drawn. We need to talk about Azure Container Apps. This was announced now at Ignite, and and it's like build and deploy modern apps and microservices using serverless containers. So in a way, you had this with Azure Container Instances, right? You could just spin up an ACI. Bam, that's it. With Azure Container Apps, I what my personal take is that this is a merge or a blend between ACI and Kubernetes. So the, the AKS or Azure Kubernetes services. And I use ACIs a lot and we use them in production. And I spin up two or 300 containers every day and then we kill them uh, or destroy them when they're done. 
because we do long running operations. We calculate a lot. We do uh, metric calculations, whatever. Spin things up. When we're done, we kill them. And we orchestrate this using Azure Functions. And we can also orchestrate that using different types of events. In the past, we used AKS or Azure Kubernetes services. But whenever we needed to scale up, it took eight minutes to get a new node or a new server. With HCI, it takes less than a minute. It takes a couple of seconds and we're done. Um, so with Azure Container Apps, I see this kind of as a blend. You get some of the capabilities and power of Kubernetes because it is based on the Kubernetes infrastructure or some of it at least. Uh, so you can avoid kind of the complex, complex infrastructure here. Uh, same deal with any container that you code in your own language. You build microservices with full support of Dapper. And that's the distributed application runtime, which is an open source initiative for, for building uh, kind of cloud native and, and distributed apps. So if you haven't checked out Dapper, you can do that. And we might actually make a recording of one episode of Dapper in Azure as well, and uh, possibly together with Azure Container Apps. Uh, so we'll, we'll bundle those. And with Azure Container Apps, like I mentioned, we with ACIs, we can scale up and scale down. We do that using functions. With AKS, we could scale up and scale down, but it took quite some time, uh, at least when we did that. And with Azure Container App, I like how you can scale. It's scaled based on traffic, which is a traditional thing you could also do with AKS. You could monitor traffic, and when the load increased, you could kind of just add a new node or more replicas, and, and you scale things up. Um, now you can do that with Azure Container Apps uh, based on traffic or events using Keta or Kubernetes event-driven auto-scaling. And the support, uh, so the supported services that support Keta is Azure Event Hub. So anything you can do in the Azure Event Hub, voila, now you have support for scaling your container apps. If you use Apache Kafka, you can do that. RabbitMQ queues, uh, MongoDB, MySQL, uh, or PostgreSQL. These are the, the current kind of uh, Keta-supported triggers uh, for scaling, which is pretty cool. So whenever you get a load of incoming stuff in a queue or, or you send a message in a queue saying, hey, you know what, now we need to scale up, the system can do that automatically. So I, I really like that. And talking about scale, there's one thing that we could never do with AKS or Azure Kubernetes services. And granted, it's about two years ago that we kind of sunset our AKS deployments. So things might have changed. I haven't used it for some time. We could never scale down to zero. It was not supported to go down to zero nodes. You always had to have one node minimum running. And I think the recommendation was to have three. With Azure Container Apps, you can scale down to zero, right? So you can just remove all of them, but you don't actually remove all the deployments. Like with ACI, when we scale down to zero, we actually kill the deployment, we remove it. Now you can scale down uh, because you pay by the second. So this makes sense. So this wasn't always easy in the past. And with the traditional AKS, the last time I used it, uh, we could scale down, like I said, to one instance. And at the same time, we couldn't change the size of that node. So if we had one of the bigger VMs as a node and we didn't need it for the coming two days, we couldn't scale down to zero and we had to pay the cost for that big node just running on idle. So that's also one of the great capabilities of Azure Container Apps. You can scale to zero. Um, so some of the capabilities, just to kind of round that up, is you can run multiple container revisions and manage the container apps uh, app lifecycle. Life uh, you have auto-scaling, like we talked about. You can enable HTTPS ingress without managing any other Azure infra. You don't have to set everything up around it. You can do that by con configuring Azure uh, container apps. 
uh, you can split traffic across multiple versions of an application for like A-B testing or blue-green deployment scenarios. And I really like that because today we run and operate microservices that we built. And sometimes it can be really tricky to see if a new version is actually going to work out. And then with this, just like you can with uh, deployment slots in app services, you can say, here's a new slot, send 20% of the traffic to that slot. You can do the same with Azure Container Apps. So now you have version one running and you have version 1.1 with two bug fixes or with a new feature, but you're not sure how it will be accepted. You're not sure what's going to happen on the back end, maybe how it integrates with you know third-party integrations you have, whatever. You can say 10% of the traffic will go through the new version, everything else on the older version. Then can kind of monitor logs on that. And when you see that, okay, this seems to work out, you can go up to 50% or whatever you want, or just go to 100%. So you can still um, kind of split the traffic here. And I, I really like that. Um, and I also mentioned you can review the logs to see things are working out. The logs for Azure Container Apps is based on Azure Log Analytics. So you have a lo uh, Log Analytics workspace, and that's it. And then you get all the logging capabilities right in there. So how does it work? I think, so I took it for a spin this morning, actually. And Azure Container App is deployed to something called a container app environment. Uh, and that's kind of a, a secure boundary around groups of containers. Just like you uh, you would put stuff into a resource group to kind of group them, you can group things inside of a container app environment, but it's not like a resource group because a resource group isn't really permission or access or security. It's just a boundary. Container app environments is also a boundary. Uh, but here you also have, uh, when you stu put stuff into the same environment, uh, it gets the same virtual network and they can write logs to the same log analytics workspace. So if you build a microservice architecture and a couple of these things need to talk to one another, you can put them in the same container app environment and they can do that using the same virtual network because then you can block access externally. In, in our case, all of our microservices running in the cloud, clouding containers are entirely blocked from incoming traffic. Nothing can reach in. So we have Azure app services running for the web apps but all the background work, all the, the microservice, all the calculations, everything that we do uh, happen in containers that are entirely isolated. No connections allowed in, but they need to talk to one another sometimes. Today we do that over queues or other means where we put encrypted data and, and they communicate over one or, or more queues. Uh, in this case, we can get them perhaps to then talk to one another directly because they're in the same environment in the same subnet. So I like that. So there's some, some good capabilities here. And then, of course, uh, the, the reasons to use the same environments is exactly that. When they need to talk to one another, you make it possible for apps to uh, kind of securely communicate using Dapper. So if you build your apps using Dapper, you can get two or more apps to talk to one another if they're inside of the same container app environment. Uh, you can share Dapper config between apps as well. So you don't have to kind of recreate that for each and every one of them. And then you have, of course, reasons why you would want to separate these environments. If an application must never share the resources with the other application, if there is a, a boundary, a logical boundary, uh, data compliance, maybe data regulatory compliance requirements or something else that you have in your organization that says you're not allowed to get this app to communicate with that other app for whatever reason, uh, you can separate them using container app environments. So there's, I think to, to round that up, I, I think we'll have a separate episode on Azure container apps. Uh, and just to round it up, if you use this now for the preview, there are some considerations. There's, when I looked now, there were, were only uh, two regions available, I think, North Europe, and I don't know if it was Canada or Central US, can't remember. 
um, but only two two regions that I could select from. So if you plan to test it with your existing infra in any any kind of way, it may or may not work, depending on how you want to deploy things. Um, you can have two environments. Uh, you can have 20 container apps per environment. You can have 25 replicas per container app. Uh, you can have two cores per replica, and you can have 50 cores per environment in total. Uh, so those are the limitations, at least now in the preview. So maybe this will change. Uh, we'll put a link to, to this in the show notes. You can see everything and read about the preview, how to get started. Microsoft already did some, some pretty good documentation around how to take this first spin, all the steps to get started, considerations, use cases, and stuff like this. So it's, it's not like they announced a new service and said, hey, try it out, and then you had to kind of figure it out. There's some really good documentation around this as well. So I, I'm impressed and I like it. That said, can also mention I tried to deploy three or four times before it actually worked. I don't know why. Uh, tried a couple of different things, and on the fourth attempt, it started working for some reason. So there's probably something that needs to be worked worked out. Uh, it's a preview. Could be intermittent issues or transient faults that happen. I have no idea. Um, but you know, if you do try it out and it doesn't work and it says deployment failed and you don't understand what that message means, try again. Try with some different parameters, perhaps. Uh, so I tried a couple of times and then it started working. Uh, now, in the best of uh, ideal worlds, the error message would come back and say, hey, it failed because you choose an incorrect name for this thing or uh, you choose, you know, whatever, an incorrect image from an inaccessible repository, whatever. Um, but to me, it was just, that didn't work, bad operation. It's like bad buys, you cannot do that. <laughs> try again. And I did try again. Um, so it did work eventually. But that's enough about Azure Container Apps. I think I've said Azure Container Apps now several times. Uh, we will do an episode on that, I can promise you, because I'm super excited. We'll do that after we take it for a spin. Um, I already have some production workloads of spare time projects, one of them processing now uh, uh, close to 800 million events per month. So it's it's doing a lot of stuff. I already have containerized some of those apps. Uh, so they're running in ACIs right now. So I'm going to try to move them to Azure Container Apps and see what differs, what's different on the infra. So we have some kind of real use case to take a look at as well, uh, because I need to evaluate this for, for the real businesses that we operate as well. So per perhaps we change the then the podcast's name to control alt azure container apps in the future <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely super interesting and and i haven't tried this out yet i i did see a demo on this and to to me it feels really that azure container apps falls in between aci and aks in the sense that the container apps i feel it's sort of managed Kubernetes cluster for you. So you get exposed a certain set of resources and, and certain functionality. And was it so, now that you've, you've briefly tried this, but was it so that you need to craft an ARM template that introduces the, the container that you want to run as an app? So the, the beauty of this, and I think Microsoft did a really great thing here, because they I haven't seen this with any of the other things, is when you create a new... Uh, Azure Container App, just to say that one more time. Uh, when you do that, you can say, use a Hello World image. 
right? And they will deploy a standardized Hello World image just to get the system up and running. Because in the past, it could be, you know, perhaps some things to figure out with AKS or container instances or any type of container to see it's not running. Is it because the logic in the container is wrong? Is it because the image has been built incorrectly? Is it because infrastructure is not configured in the right way? There could be quite many things that could kind of uh, make something not work. Now you can just say, use the hello world default image, because then you know the code in the image will work. And you can focus on making sure that everything around it, the configuration that you, you the buttons you click, if you will, work. When I set it up, I used the uh, Azure portal. It was click at a click, a couple of clicks and you're done. So it's it's super easy. And I think you can use the CLI as well. You can use ARM templates, you can use whatever you want. Um, I use the portal. Um, Super easy, also because I don't have a container image I want to try out right now. Right now, I just want to take it for a spin, see what options I have, see the settings, configurations, what I can fine tune, how I can load balance the traffic, and uh, yeah, uh, these things that we just talked about. Uh, when I figure that out, I will take my own custom images and plug that in and see how those work. Sounds really, really good. I will also take this for a spin, definitely with the Hello World image first to actually see that I understand what's happening in there. So for me, I've, I've just got one more thing that sort of caught my attention. And this is not as massive as I would uh, expect Azure Container Apps eventually to be, but this is updates to Azure Logic Apps, uh, especially on the standard features. And, and there's a couple of smaller additions now to Logic Apps, but, but the interesting one here is that you can now, in preview, you can now run Logic Apps in a fully disconnected fashion. So this requires that you set up the Azure Arc, of course, first. But then when you want to run a Logic App instance in a disconnected fashion, meaning it's not using Azure storage for, for managing state, you can leverage a SQL Server for this. So what I envision that I can do, I can spin up SQL Server on, on a Ubuntu Linux virtual machine. Then I can have Azure Arc connect to that one. And then I can have my logic apps running in the on-premises or on the edge. And it simply leverages the Ubuntu-based SQL Server. And I need nothing from Azure. But I haven't tried this yet. So it will be interesting to see how complex this is going to be to set up. Do I need to do a lot of custom scripting to get the settings just so that it's satisfied? Or is this more of a packaging a logic apps based process or automation and simply having it run? The other thing, and I, I think Toby, this is more interesting for you as well. There's now managed identity support for built-in operations and connectors in logic apps. And this has often been a problem. You're crafting this careful orchestration then you need to need to call a custom connector or a built-in connector, and suddenly it's asking for authentication, and you're typing in your email address and your password and doing MFA, and you sort of feel bad because now you've embedded some secrets, either through Key Vault or manually within the orchestration. But now with managed identity, you can actually leverage, hopefully, the system assigned managed identity here and not needing to use your personal credentials to access various things, operations and connectors. The last thing, and this was really fuzzy 
so far. So I need to look a few sessions on this and then try this out. Is that there's an additional automation task support for event replication. Uh, and this is for business continuity and disaster recovery through Event Hub and Service Bus. Meaning, if you have a virtual machine that fails or doesn't start when it's supposed to be, you can get an event for that and execute a task in Logic Apps to ensure that business can continue. So I see this as an interesting blend between Azure Automation, which obviously is PowerShell based, and now with Logic Apps sort of starting to uh, provide or, or enable those automation tasks that you typically need to run your business as opposed to just running an app in, in that sense. All right, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I like the managed identity thing here as well, um, because this is like you mentioned, it's a problem. And we see this time and time again, uh, when I've done security reviews of Azure subscriptions and, and setups and directories, and you take a look at applications, they have client ID in secret or whatever embedded either in the code, which is a no-no, big no-no, uh, or they use it as environment variables, which is also a big no-no, uh, or as configuration values in, for example, logic apps, you have credentials embedded. So you can just go to the configuration and say, oh, here's a plain text key to access whatever the resource have access to or the whatever the service principal have access to. So I, I like this. Um, using a managed identity and you can then grant role-based access control or whatever you want to this thing and say this identity can access only this one thing and the app itself is running under that identity and there are no credentials so it's passwordless so you cannot steal the credentials and say hey now i'm going to do something with those because the only thing that can use them is the system uh, that is running the system managed identity which in this case is that one logic app so definitely welcome Indeed. So I, I think these four were sort of top of mind based on the keynotes and some of the sessions so far. And the only thing we have left is the unexpected question. I think it's your turn to ask me. Okay, so I, I have an interesting question here, uh, possibly also unexpected. How many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? And I don't urge anyone to actually try this out or um, you know, to kill elephants. It's just in, in theory, how many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? So step one, acquire an elephant. Step two, acquire <laughs> enough chickens. Test and try, <laughs> see the results, retry. Ah, this is a tough one. So I've seen elephants in, in, in person, in, in, in the nature, they're, they're massive. Uh, chickens, on the other hand, they're, they're quite <laughs> tiny. <laughs> you can really tell that I live in the city. I rarely go to the countryside myself. So I'm estimating after some careful consideration, it is about 1.25 million chicken. <laughs> and, and, okay. and the reason for this is that I am, I am prepared for massive losses in terms of, of my chicken troops. The elephant might not be uh, a rabid one or or enraged with something it could just be passively watching the scenery and eating what elephants eat <laughs> normally <laughs> but the, but the Why chickens, do elephants eat you see <laughs> i have no idea probably something grass and things but peanut butter and jelly <laughs> yeah could be could be on a special day so chickens on the other hand my troops i i could probably coach them a bit 
So I'm envisioning about 500,000 to see which which mode of attack works. And then the reminder, I, I would simply simply use attack from three directions, probably from the behind. And, and, and once you sort of start to get hang of it, put all in, hope for the best. So 1.25 million, that's that's my guesstimate. Okay, now that, that's a good guess. Uh, you could also go for the, uh, if, if you don't go for an attack, you could do the passive attack, which is just deploy those 1.25 million chickens, you know, in the, in the center where the elephant is. And then as far as the elephant can see, there's only going to be chickens, so there's going to be nothing to eat unless it actually eats chickens, and then your chickens will be in danger. <laughs> uh, and then the chickens will eat everything on the ground, the elephant has nothing to eat, and then it will die of starvation, which is horrible. So again, don't do that. <laughs> this was interesting. I need to simulate this somehow. So <laughs> thank you again for, for joining us. We hope you enjoy everything Ignite has to offer, and we'll be sure to dive deeper into plenty of these announcements in future episodes. All right, until next time, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Mm-hmm.